Artificial intelligence and algorithms have transformed business efficiency, but there is a doubt on the ethics of it and its social impact. The question we are asking here today is, can these technologies help in creating more equitable societies? You're listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila, a series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Atte Palomäki. Joining me today to talk about how algorithms and artificial intelligence can be used for social good are Keith E. Sonderling, Commissioner, U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission from Washington, and François Candelon, Global Director of BCG Henderson Institute, who joins us from Paris. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good afternoon. So, Keith, recently Eric Schmidt, the former chief of Google, reportedly committed a fund of more than $100 million dollars in AI research to solve the hard problems like bias, harm, and geopolitical conflict. What do you say to that? I think that is a really good thing. People obviously believe in artificial intelligence and the technology, the way it's being developed, the way it's being used across various industries. It's here, it's here to stay, it is the future. So when somebody gives money like that to invest to make sure it's done properly, that it's used for good and not used for harm, not used for bias or geopolitical conflict, as you said, I think that's a good thing that we should all support because there's a recognition especially in my space, that although it could do a lot of good, there is the potential for serious harm here if we do not address these issues on the front end. And I believe the technology is still so new and still being developed that having addressing this now and putting money into it now will really help it flourish in the marketplace. You work with the U.S. government and have earlier stated that unless used carefully, algorithms could multiply inequalities in the job market. You have also asked the question, do robots care about your civil rights? Could you elaborate on your thinking here, please? You know, there's many studies here from the United States, for instance, one showed that hiring managers are more likely to favor resumes featuring male names over female names, even though the resumes are otherwise identical. Another study showed that African-Americans and Asian-Americans who whiten their resumes, what I mean by that is they delete references to their race, receive more callbacks than identical applicants. Problem is that companies, a lot of times, that they don't find out about this until the discrimination has occurred. But you know, AI can help eliminate bias from the earliest stages of the hiring process. And that's a very very good use of AI. But at the same time, it, it can actually intentionally discriminate at the screening phase. It can unintentionally discriminate at the, the screening phase, um, which we'll talk about at length, because if it is poorly designed and it's carelessly implemented, it can scale discrimination larger than one person. And you know why? That's because it's based on the predictions AI makes It's only as sound as in the training data, which those algorithms rely. Yeah, and I, I think, let me jump here, because I, I strongly agree with what you've just said. AI is a technology. It's neither good nor bad. It's the way it's designed. And it's the way we as humans, we uh, as human, we are actually uh, dealing with it. We are designing it. So, and And I think that's really a great opportunity to have AI algorithm to support and to limit the biases. But as you said, so we should not be against AI. We should be really dealing with the limits of and the limitations of the designers, the AI software designers. 
And, and I think to, to your point, we can't be against AI because the amount of money that's going into this, the amount of developers across the world, it's here and it is not going away. Yeah, it so it is realized, but you can be, uh, the, the fact that it's about money spending, we can be against, let's say, uh, weapons. No, exactly. It, just how do we do it ethically now and how do we do it in accordance, not only with the laws that I'm concerned about in the United States, but because it's being used globally, how do we yeah. all get involved in this conversation to make sure that it's it's used in accordance with civil rights across the world? So, Francois, you come from the other spectrum, uh, working in extensively with corporations and governments. What are the risks as a society from a geopolitical, environmental and economic point of view? This is an industrial revolution. Therefore, as in any revolution, you will have winners and potentially losers. And and therefore, there are risks that are coming with it. So um, you have uh, people, the jobs will change. uh, Therefore, there are some capabilities that will be replaced by AI. Maybe not totally replaced, but at least massively uh, changed uh, by AI. We can see it uh, on the, let's say, uh, uh in any uh, white or blue color uh, job so so this is something very important it is important to realize as well that while this is a revolution therefore we'll have a, a typical schumpeterian create, creative destruction cycle jobs will change some will be destroyed some new jobs will appear but it's not because let's say you lose a job somewhere that it will be created at the same place and therefore there are some locations that will lose and uh, while others will win. And at the moment, given how advanced they are compared to the other uh, regions, the US and China are better positioned to take advantage of it. As a European, I'm trying to wake up my continent. Not sure I will. Ha- it will happen. But, but, but I think that therefore we have real geopolitical questions Um, we have what could happen in Africa as well if we are not able to help this continent move up uh, the ladder of AI. Um, there is, of course, uh, the potential risk of decoupling between China and the US. Um, so, so many, many, many things there. Maybe one last point in terms of risk, it's less geopolitical, less about the economy um, and employment, but We need to realize as well that while AI can help uh, to uh, the, the fight against uh, climate uh, climate change uh, and global warming, it has a cost as well. For instance, training one single model is CO2 equivalent of five cars in their lifetimes. So, so there are many things, but it's novel. And as, uh, let's say, Keith was uh, saying just earlier on, it's something new. We are at the beginning of a new revolution. Let's be back to the end of the 19th century with cars and then airplanes and so on. So this is something of, this is a massive element. I agree. It's it's a massive element, but it's hitting every single, or it has the potential to hit every single aspect of life to, to the scale we've never seen before. It's being used in every aspect of life including some areas that deal with significant um, civil rights implications, your livelihood, you know, your ability to earn a living. And that's why, you know, we all need to have this discussion now and early before it gets too far down um, the road. 
and it really causes potential inequities. But what type of mechanisms would there be to secure that algorithms and AI are being developed in high quality and perhaps shared and made sure that uh, they are then available at a wide scale? On my side, I believe that, for instance, and I very often take Finland as an example, with all the online courses that you've developed to make your population more aware of what AI is. And I believe that training on one side, but making, let's say, with upskilling, reskilling, and so on in in companies, but as well making the population aware is is a way to understand what AI can do, what it cannot do, and therefore be, uh, let's say, uh, the, the, the less you know, the more you're scared. And um, and the less you know, the easiest it is to manipulate you. So, uh, so this is why the, I believe that governments have a critical role to discuss in making this awareness for the entire population. I think a lot in an ethical, legal matter, I think a lot of that is on us as regulators to take our laws that are very complicated and explain it to a new group. Because the people designing and developing AI are not, in my world, coming from, are not labor and employment lawyers, or they're not human resources professionals. They're, they're computer scientists, engineers. Those are the people who, who know how to code and know how to do that. So it is upon us in the different areas where it's being used to inform them and to educate them about whether it's ethics, whether it's legal obligations. So those can be built into the system. But without us being at the table, how are they going to know to do that? We can't just expect them to understand how to comply with complicated global laws, whether you're using it in criminal justice, whether you're using it in employment, or when you're using it in uh, for defense technology. I think regulators need to be at the seat at the table with the developers earlier. And that's unique. And we haven't um, seen that before. And for me, you, we need to do that with the uh, data scientists. This is one thing, but there is one more issue, which is the fact that if I take a corporation, very often the C-suite doesn't understand what AI does. And therefore, while in uh, other elements of the um, or areas of the company, you very often have a balance, which is made by people who are selected for uh, their capacity, their capabilities, and so on, and their experience. Now, basically, they are not counterbalancing what the data scientists will do and the, and the decisions the data scientists will take without any without trying to be malicious. So, so this is why I'm trying to to have, a, have this image of the uh, a car, and maybe we would need to have an AI driver's license for the CXO so that they understand the rules and um, the impact it can have. Mm. I completely agree with you. How do we get to the C-level who, who are um, may not be involved in the purchase, but to, to make sure that from the company's perspective, that the lawful and ethical use of AI in their company, no matter what it's being used for, is ingrained, just like other areas where, you know, ethical business practices. How do we do that with AI? Keith, what in your opinion is this level of maturity amongst the C-suite in corporate life today on AI? Well, everybody obviously knows about it. It's a buzzword everywhere. Yeah, it's a buzzword, you know, AI, machine learning. I, I don't know if... um you know, how much it's differentiated between the different technologies, but everyone knows, especially, you know, when you have large um, trade groups and, you know, World Economic Forum and all these other groups talking about it, um, there's definitely a knowledge of it. That there's definitely an understanding that it's 
technology and in the post-COVID world that every company is going to have to implement this. But I don't think yet it's it's they understand the risk and or have the systems in place like they do for other areas of their business that they've long established potential liability and have systems in place. Yes. And and I would say based on let's say my uh, day-to-day work where I meet with many of them, I can tell you that the maturity is not very high, unfortunately, but we need to recognize that with AI, it's even tougher because of the ability to scale very quickly on one hand. So you can have something, but basically then it can be all over the place and the continuous improvement and the continuous learning, which means that after a couple of days, a couple of something that was really, uh, and based on the data sets, something that was not a problem becomes a problem. So you, uh, and we had examples, for instance, with uh, uh, some um, uh, some algorithms uh, becoming anti-Semitic and, and so on. And it was not any, there was any, there was no bias initially, but the fact that the learning uh, was uh, was very different. So, so I, you can be, let's say, uh, then prosecuted, but without any bad intention. You're 100% right. The computers don't have a mind of their own yet. It's just being based on the data. And what I don't think companies understand yet is that a biased decision made by a computer, if the computer says, you know, to your example, or we've seen a lot of examples of uh, gender discrimination when it comes to AI, or that is the company is still liable. You, You can't just say, oh, the algorithm made this decision. It's not my fault. That that's not how liability works in um, the United States or elsewhere. So, you know, to our, to your point is that to the sea level, if you're buying this, you can't just let it go. You can't just implement it. You can't have a hands-off approach because you're liable for whatever the decision makes, even if you, if you intended to use it to diversify. So this liability, how can one then assure the data, which is being used, the quality of it is high enough and the algorithms, they are coded in the right way. You know, how does one generate that trust which is needed? Well, let me give you a very well-known example here in the United States uh, with Amazon. And they were very public about this. So they tested a HR system to try to um, diversify uh, their workforce. And what they did is they fed the algorithm um, applicants and employees in one position for the last 10 years and asked the computer, the resumes, and their current employees and ask the computer, the algorithm to rate them on a scale from one to five. And because the vast majority of those applicants and employees were um, were men, the computer automatically started downgrading anyone who went to a women's college or played women's sports teams on their resume. So because they, they were not in the, the data set, so it, you, you're automatically lowered. And again, to my point, this was not a part of a misogynistic intent on the behalf of the AI. It was a, it was a intent of what the was fed to the AI, the data that was fed to the AI. So an example like that, you have to look about first what's going in. And, and you know, and that's not complicated. We've seen that in other areas. What is in the model? And if you if your model is 99% men, what do you think the algorithm is going to produce? So you know, on the front end, a lot of it is making sure you have a, a diverse data set, whether it's employment applications or, or certain business models or tools, um, making sure that that's diverse be, uh, to get the right results. The second issue too is how do you prevent this? Well, is there a discriminatory algorithm? Does the algorithm allow, you may have a very diverse data set, but does the algorithm allow the user to discriminate? And an example like that here in the United States 
Um, there was a class action lawsuit, not an EEOC case, against Facebook about their advertising practices. So, uh, you know, in their normal advertising practices for a product, you can um, say, oh, we only want to show this ad to people who are 20 to 25 years old with a college degree that live in this part of the country. Well, they allowed employers to do that for employment opportunities. So with just a few clicks here, they were able to uh, commit age discrimination by limiting who would see those job applicants to younger individuals. So that wasn't, they could have, Facebook has a huge data set about who is um, you know, seeing the ad, but they limited it there using AI to only people um, of a certain age range. So you see the two examples there, the compare and contrast, one based off bad data, second based off good data, but actually using a discriminatory algorithm. Mm. And Francois, what are your thoughts on the theme of trust of AI? The last thing is the fact that the companies that use it need to be trusted. And, um, and for instance, one of the issues we face for autonomous driving, and there are some others related to, but okay, who do you trust? Can we really trust these companies, the fact that they will use it in a non-discriminatory way or in a, in a way that will be very positive for the society? So this is why I think it's very important if we want to leverage the full potential of AI, that we make sure that all stakeholders are aware, knowledgeable, and that each case, to a certain extent, is extremely clear for, uh, especially as I said, for in terms of trust of the company, the cost benefits, let's say the benefit versus risk ratio. And of course, it is done in a responsible way. And that's a great point, but the stakeholders are going to be different depending on the uses, which is where it gets more complicated. So in my world, in labor and employment, you know, the stakeholders are number one, the employees who are being subjected or applicants who are being subject to this technology. Number two is the employer who's buying the technology or developing it themselves and implementing it in their um, company. So there's two parts to the employer. It's number one, they're, they're buying it. What, you know, what do they need to ask when they're buying it to make sure it doesn't discriminate? And number two, how do you implement it properly? And then the third stakeholder in my world is the, is the actual vendors where I said earlier, we need to teach them about our loss, but that's going to be different in every use of AI to your point. And how do we identify who those stakeholders are? Because they're different for every single use, whether it's a customer being subject to AI or, or, or you know, like I said, an employee or you know, even a foreign government. So how, how do we then identify all the different stakeholders? And with AI, because it's in every industry and it's going to be universal, that's a lot of people and it's different for each use. So that's another thing companies, I think, need to be cognizant of. Well, in terms of... AI and equitable societies, would there be any examples of, you know, how to leverage on, on that front in a positive way? Thanks to AI, you have four typical advantage. The ultra granularity of data and the ability to deal with massive amounts of data. You have the, uh, let's say, real-time decision-making, the scale and the continuous learning and improvement. And so when you take these four elements in mind, you can see that you can do many great things. For instance, um, we are working in, um, in Africa with some governments. And if I take uh, uh, Egypt, for instance, they wanted to do something and to better improve, let's say, the, the, the corn uh, uh, crops. And But they didn't know where they were located. And by using data, lots of image um, we're able to say where it was. So therefore, with your tri-granular and, the, and dealing with the ability to deal with big uh, big data, we're able to customize 
the um, the opportunities and uh, the um, resource allocation. Uh, I have plenty of examples about forecasting for flood, for uh, droughts, where you can really do something extremely specific. Keith, do you think what Francois describes here can help not only control, but perhaps also bridge the social divide? I know in the tech industry, a lot of uh, job descriptions have, we're looking for ninja coders, you know, that really lean towards um, friendly uh, for males to apply, but not females. So there's now AI that goes through hundreds of thousands of uh, job descriptions and looks for linguistic patterns and tries to pull out any um, references to uh, gender, to race, and makes it more inclusive for people to apply. And then they can show you how to tweak your job description to have uh, more women apply, to make it more friendly for other uh, races and national origin to apply who historically would not have applied to that job because the way the job description was written. So that's a really great use of AI that can help diversify workforce. Another, and I briefly touched on it earlier, is interview programs that rely on natural language processing. So in an interview, you know, the first uh, with a human at the first stage, what's the first thing you see? You see the person, right? So you see that the person is potentially a woman. You see the person's a certain race, national origin, or even religion. You can maybe see that they're disabled or pregnant. And you know when that is seen so early on, you know, the interviewer in their head may say, well, this person is going to cost me. You know, This person is pregnant. She's going to leave. That's going to cost me. This person is disabled. They may not be able to do the work, although they may be able to. Or I'm just... I'm, a racist, and I don't want to hire somebody from this country. AI can eliminate that and actually go based upon what the actual they're saying in the interview based on the natural language processing. So you actually can judge them on the substance of their interview opposed to those characteristics that they cannot change. And I think those are very good uh, uses of AI, again, in my space, to really help diversify the workforce, to help workers who otherwise wouldn't have applied to these jobs feel more comfortable to do so, and also in the interview process, get rid of those biases, which are you know very historic, and actually go to what the candidate's skills are, what they're saying. But we need to be careful not to become too dependent and that we're able to challenge, uh, I would say, the, the, the results coming from, uh, the, um, from the algorithm. It's not always sure and for sure that the algorithm is right. And, and, and I think that keeping this human supervision is something critical, but it won't be that easy. At the moment, it's okay because we have people who be, went through this uh, learning curve, experience curve, and therefore they are able to challenge. Um, AI, but in the next five, ten years, how are they able to challenge it? For me, it's one of the key issues or key questions we need to ask ourselves. For instance, for companies now, and we're seeing this across the globe, this is not unique to the United States, where they're using AI to monitor their employees. They're using AI to see how productive their employees are and if they're hitting their targets, um, whether it's in manufacturing or delivery. So at that point, AI is just assessing them based on preset notions of how much time it should take. But what happens if that person uh, has a disability and can't hit that? The, The computer is going to have a hard time knowing that, or if the person is pregnant and they can't, you know, do the strenuous activities, and then they get lowered, scored, um, or they need some kind of accommodation because of their religion, and then you know they can't perform on certain days, and they they automatically get fired because they didn't hit that metrics. Well, 
pre-AI, when you actually have a manager there who's a human and can see that that person is struggling. You know, in the United States, the employer has the obligation uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act to actually engage with that employee to make sure that they're okay, to make sure that if they're not hitting their targets and it's because of the disability, you have to make an accommodation for that. Now, at, at this point, I don't know outside of science fiction movies, that AI can actually see, that human emotion can actually see that a person is struggling because of a disability or because they need an accommodation in the workplace. So but as a lot of the companies are just turning over these managerial functions to AI, a human still has to be in a loop. And, and, and I think if I may, that this is why I'm uh, advocating the fact that companies at the moment, some of them at least are making a mistake, trying to optimize human on one side and AI on the other side. So I think that for companies, they need to think about human plus AI as a system. AI can be a great support and they need to make sure that it is leveraged with its full potential. But at the same time, with human on top of it, because we have different capabilities, we're able to deal with ambiguity much more than AI, which on the other front can work with much more big data or uh, let's say a large amount of data. We've been doing with MIT every year with MIT, um, we do a joint report on uh, the impact of uh, AI on corporations and so on. And and, uh, in the report we had in 2020, we found that the companies that were investing in AI and had a real, really significant financial benefit of these investments were the ones that were creating a kind of mutual learning between human and AI. I think that's universally applicable. That's it. I mean, that's the secret formula. Indeed, striking the right balance between AI and humans is the way forward. Keith and Francois, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for staying with us. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast. I'm Atte Palomäki, and today we went Beyond Business. You've been listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila. This podcast is produced by Spoon Finland and recorded on location in Helsinki.